Well, peace be with you. Uh, there's an expression that imitation is the uh, sincerest form of flattery. Imitation is the most sincerest form of flattery. And we get that, right? Because if we're going to imitate someone, uh, it's like we obviously think there's something worthy in them that we want to imitate. And so actually, ergo, it's, it's a compliment. And so uh, we see that happen in different places in our lives. Maybe we, you know, we want to emulate maybe someone who was a, a, an elementary school teacher of us or, or of or a basketball coach when we were young, or a Sunday school teacher, or someone in our family, a friend, someone like that. But in Christianity, of course, a big part of this is being like Jesus. We want to be like Jesus, and this is a part of our spiritual growth and who we want to become and as we mature as, as followers of him. And uh, actually, so we're going through the Gospel of John right now. One of the 12 apostles, one of the intimates, he's walking with Jesus, talking with him. He was there. And then uh, there's also a couple of letters in the New Testament that were written by him as well, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so in 1st John chapter 2, verse 6, he says this, Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Or it could be translated, ought to live in the same way he lived. And so, okay, if, if we believe that he is who he says he is, we want to, we want to imitate and kind of do the things that he, he wants to do. Um, <clears throat> in the 1990s, uh, there was a youth group leader, who uh, really wanted to kind of impress this idea on the youth in her youth group. So she thought, you know, i got to do something, maybe make a cool bracelet that they'd want to wear or something. And I'm going to think of an acronym so whenever they walk around, they can always think that we need to emulate Jesus. And, and, and she came up with W, and she's from Michigan, WWJD. And what does that stand for? What would Jesus do, right? And it took off around the globe, and that just speaks to the universal nature of this desire. But what would Jesus do? Okay, what would Jesus do? Well, when you ask people that question, a few things come to mind. First, they think loving, right? He's loving, right? That's the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So clearly that's what he does, and he often does it in a very self-sacrificial way. Um, humility, that's another thing that people say, right? Humble, putting others before yourself, like looking out for the interests of others. And I've used this definition before, but it's a great one uh, by the... Uh, world-class uh, literary critic and author, uh, C.S. Lewis, wrote all the Narnia things as well. Uh, he says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but of yourself less. And I think that's a great understanding of humility. Not thinking less of yourself. You're not beating yourself up. It's not thinking less of yourself, but of yourself less. In a book um, that touches on this, Francis and Lisa Chan write this, if two people make it their goal to imitate the humility of Christ, everything else will take care of itself. I guess that's really true. If two people make it their goal to imitate the humility of Christ, everything else will take care of itself. A third popular response, what would Jesus do, is sacrifice, right? Sacrifice. Uh, there was a marine training facility called Paris Island, and a young man had signed up for the forces. And he was, uh, he was kind of on the outs. People, he didn't really fit in, and, and, and the other troops didn't really like him. And so some of them got together and said, you know, let's, let's do this practical a joke on him, okay? Let's, okay, one day when he's in the barracks all by himself, we're, we're going to have this grenade. Now, it's dead. It's not live, but we're going to throw it in, pretend it's alive, and say, live grenade, and see what happens. Let's just watch him run and scream. <laughs> he's going to make a fool of himself. And so one day, he's in there all himself, and the other guys are like, okay, now's the time. And so they get this dead grenade. They throw it in, live grenade, and they're like, okay, watch the guy run. He jumps on it, pulls it into his stomach, and yells everyone else to get away because they could get hurt. And all the guys outside all of a sudden are just drenched in shame. 
because what they thought would be his moment of humiliation was this moment of loving self-sacrifice. <laughs> Even though they treated him that way, he was willing to bring hurt upon himself for their good. And this is a great illustration of the sacrifice of Jesus. And what does he say? And later on in John's gospel, we're not there yet, but chapter 15, verse 13, that no greater love has someone than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Right? So love, humility, Sacrifice. The great reformer Martin Luther wrote, Each person ought to become to the other a kind of Christ, so that we may be Christ's to one another. Imagine that, that we might be Christ's to one another. But when it comes to being like Jesus, maybe this seems obvious, but we need to say it we can only be like him if we know what he's like. We can only be like Jesus if we know what he's like, because in reality, quite often we have blind spots. Let's say someone says, hey, um, I'm reading the book To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, can you tell me what it's like? But you've only read chapter 4. Well, you can tell them what chapter 4 is like. You can't really tell them what the whole book is like. What if they say, hey, I'm going to see that new Top Gun movie. Uh, what's it like? Well, you only saw the first 10 minutes because you fell asleep, because that happens sometimes. And so you can't really tell them what the whole whole movie's like, you can only tell them about those first 10 minutes. Well, I think it's just honest to acknowledge that quite often when it comes to Jesus, we have certain favorite types of things that we will say, love, yes, humility, yes, sacrifice, yes, but we sometimes have these blind spots and we need to broaden our perspective a little bit. If we want to grow and become like him, doesn't it make sense that we maybe need to explore some of those areas that don't first come to mind and maybe that's our next best step into our own, our own spiritual maturity? And so today's text is going to help us to widen our perspective a little bit about what it means to be like Jesus, okay? So if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up to Luke chapter 11. The words will be up there on the screen as well. I'm reading from the ESV. If you've got the Westminster Church app and you want to open it and fill in the little responses or the sheet, you can do that. So it's chapter 11, and we're going to pick it up at verse 28. So this is really part two of two parts. So last week, this is the, the story of the raising of Lazarus. It was one of the miraculous signs of Jesus in the, in the Gospel of John. And um, so what happened last week is, remember Lazarus? So Lazarus is one of three siblings. There's Lazarus, there's Martha, there's Mary. Jesus cares and loves uh, all three of them. The text tells us as much. Uh, he's in another town. Uh, they hear that he's ill. Jesus delays his coming. And, and Lazarus dies, and Jesus finally goes, and Martha, one of the sisters, in her great grief, she runs out and she says, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have died if you had been here, right? Because they've been following him, learning. They, they know that he is who he says he is, and he's doing all these incredible things. So if you were here, this comes out of their own great lament. Jesus tells them that Lazarus will live again, and then he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then she makes the good confession. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, which means Messiah, uh, God's anointed one, his chosen king on the earth, uh, the, son of the son of God who is coming into the world. And so then verse 28 picks it up from there, okay? So verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard this, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, right, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And by the way, they're in Bethany, which is a little bit outside of Jerusalem. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing her that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
That's the exact same thing, the exact same wording that uh, her sister had used previously back in verse 21, which makes me think that while Jesus was delaying coming, while their brother was ill and he's getting worse and worse and they're seeing the time run out, they're having this conversation. If Jesus was here, this would not be going on. Maybe they're upset. Maybe they're just mourning. Anyway, she comes out and she says that exact same thing. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, deeply moved. Now, some of your Bibles, if you have a study Bible, have a little footnote here. Uh, And the footnote says, or indignant. So he's deeply moved or indignant. Now, which is it? Because deeply moved sounds like a compassionate thing. Deeply moved, he cares about the situation. Indignant almost sounds kind of angry a little bit, so it sounds a bit different. Well, this is one of those cases where the original manuscripts are in Greek, and so sometimes there isn't a perfect one-to-one translation from Greek into English. So he is both deeply moved and indignant. Well, why is he indignant? Why is he, is he, in, is he upset that they're sad? Well, that doesn't make sense. My sense here is he is deeply moved and indignant because death and the reign of Satan are still wielding their battle axes in the world he loves and in the lives of the people he loves. And so the reign of death and Satan is still in the world. The kingdom of God still has ground to take back. And so I think that is really what is is going on with Jesus, with his response. And so this is one of those places where compassion and passion are perfectly united. Where passion and compassion are perfectly united. And he said, verse 34, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And I've got that underlined because I just want to focus on this for a moment. Now, uh, this is the shortest verse in the Bible. It's the very shortest. Just in English, it's only two words. Now, I also want to say that as I, you know, it's not like John the Apostle put the verses and chapters in there. So quick history lesson, okay? So here's how that works. Next slide. Um, so, originally, you know, have you ever noticed in the New Testament, when Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, he doesn't use chapter and verse. He just says, Isaiah says, or the Apostle Paul, or Peter. They say, whatever. it's because they're referring to these long scrolls, and they don't have chapter and verse numbers in them. But over time, people are like, well, that's kind of inconvenient. Wouldn't it be great to say, oh, Isaiah says such and such in chapter 24, right? And so, over time, people developed a system, right? And so, in the 1200s, the chapter numbers came in. Uh, In the 1400s, Old Testament verse numbers were put in, and in the 1500s, New Testament verse numbers put in, were put in, right? And so if I can say, oh, remember that place where it says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son? Uh, I want to read around that. Where is that? Oh, it's John 3.16. Oh, okay, so people weren't able to do that before the 1500s. So the person who did the, the verse numbers in the New Testament, his name was Stephanus. But I still think it's very moving that all of a sudden, in a moment, He just comes across this verse, and he's like, wait a second, something's going on here very profound. I need to make this a whole verse itself. Jesus wept. Jesus cries. Now, when people talk about Jesus, of course, we talk about his divinity. He's, as we've been learning, he's been saying things and doing things that tells us uh, that only the God of Israel can say and do. He is God incarnate. Uh, But he's also fully human at the same time. He's he's not 50-50. He's 100% divine, 100% human. This is the mystery of the incarnation. And people look at a story like this and say, Jesus wept. Well, that must be his human side coming out, right? I just want us to think about this a little bit. So I'm going to put a picture up here. And this is a picture of Jesus. It's called uh, Christ of Pentocrator, and uh, that means almighty. 
Uh, it was discovered in St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai. So that's the place where the Ten Commandments were. So there's been a monastery there for, for a long time. And this is there. I forget which century it's from. But in the ancient world, remember, people couldn't read as much as we could today. So the images and pictures that people had in their lives really communicated something to them about theology, about what was important. And the way this is, so a couple things. So he's holding a Bible with a cross, obviously. He's, he's holding his hand as I do at the end of a service. This is called the key row. It's a symbol for Christ, um, the first two letters of Christ in Greek. So he's communicating to people who it is. And then his face, the two sides of his face are different. Okay, so a little experiment. So hold up your hand and cover one side of his face. Use, use the, if you want to, use the nose as like a dividing line. It's, it's a bit far away, so it's a bit tricky. And then cover the other side of his face. Looks very, looks very much like, almost like two different people, right? Left and right. And so the left side looks less tired. The left side looks younger, maybe more robust, right? And, and the right side, is that the right side for you too? Yeah, the right side, it's a few more wrinkles, looks, looks, looks a bit more tired, um, you know, some, something like that, fatigued perhaps. Maybe not fatigued is the right way, but worn. A little bit. And people say, when you look at this, oh, this is the same sort of thing. This is a teaching tool, right? Okay, and people say, what's the, what's the divine side? What's the human side? And people's first response is, well, well, the left side, where Jesus looks kind of more robust and everything, that's his divine side. And people say, well, the left side looks like maybe the human side because it looks a bit more worn, more wrinkles. But isn't that just our own bias? What if the divine side is supposed to be the side that has the wrinkles? What if the, what, what if, what if the divine side is that, that side that, that looks a bit more worn because it has grieved throughout human history at the brokenness in the world? What if that's the divine side? Uh, before I became a pastor, I was a summer uh, student up at a little church in Vancouver, Ontario. I know some people from Vancouver watch. It was at St. David's a Church up there. And we did a VBS in the summer. One of the stories we did was Noah in the Ark, right? And, and we always paint this story as a children's story. But if you think about it, it's like serious business. Like there is, there is judgment. There is, you know, there's a flood. You know, all these people are wiped from the face of the earth because evil and wickedness is, is wrapped around. There's only one righteous person, Noah and his family. And so his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, go in the Ark with their with their wives, right, and closes it up. And people are mocking Noah as he does this, and all of a sudden, it starts to rain for 40 days and 40 nights, right, and it goes up. We're telling this story to kids. Of course, you know, in an age-appropriate way, and there's like, you know, you know, puppets and stuff like this, and we're acting it out, and like, uh, you know, who wants to be the giraffe, you know? We're acting this all out, and we're talking about this story and the consequences, and this little kid shoots up his hand and says, can I say something? He says, yeah. I think the rain was God's tears. I think the rain was God's tears out of the mouths of babes. <laughs> think of that. You know, it's just his own speculation, but there's something profound about that. God looks upon his creation, all the sin, the wickedness in the world, and sheds tears. And here in this text, Jesus weeps. weeps. He looks upon the reign of Satan and death in the world. Things are not as they should be, and he weeps. We continue. Verse 36 right at the bottom. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? Right? So some doubt his sincerity. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. 
and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Historically, this is true. Decomposition starts on the fourth day, right? And so the idea is that as the custom in the first century with Jews is that uh, the decomposition period for a year, and then people would go in, they'd put the bones in a bone box and store them. So this is all a part of this process. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Uh, It was serious business to tamper with a grave, by the way, in the ancient world. And imagine the people around there mourning, probably horrified about what is going on, what in the world. But he reminds her, just as he did back in verse 4, this is something that will reveal the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. He's not saying this for his own benefit. He doesn't ask his heavenly father of anything. Their their wills are already in perfect concert. He's teaching the people around him. And notice the purpose. The purpose of raising up Lazarus isn't even for him to get his life back, although that's a nice side benefit. It's so that all these people will see and believe and give glory to God for this great act. Verse 33, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! It's just so amazing that he speaks and things happen. And where have we heard this before? Oh, right, creation, Genesis 1, verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. The mere presence of his voice elicits action. And the same thing happens here. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus can't hear him. He's dead. His voice elicits action. Verse 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. His face is wrapped because if the face isn't wrapped, the jaw falls open. Comes up with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, this is amazing. Like, imagine you're there. A guy who looks, we're almost at Halloween. Like, a guy who looks like a mummy walks around. <laughs> and the interesting thing about the story, it doesn't even tell us the reaction. No, no celebrating, no, no crying, no, like, embraces. And everything. like, what's going on? Doesn't even, doesn't even tell us. It's superfluous to the story goes right into a plot to kill Jesus. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what he did and believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees, right? These are the religious power brokers, and told them that what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that's the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans, right? Remember, these are the governing Romans who are really ruling the land at that time. I will, under uh, Caesar, will come and take away both our place and our nation. Might be a reference to the temple, most likely a reference to their status, right? The idea is that Jesus is a Jew. If the Romans see him doing this thing and, 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 and coming across as a king, maybe, maybe they'll come and kind of wipe us all out, take our place of privilege around. We're not totally sure, but that's probably what's going on. Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, actually reigned for 17 years, sorry, 18 years, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So there's a double meaning here, and there often is in John's gospel, a double meaning. So they're like, let's, let's get rid of this guy, and, and, and we'll all keep our status and our place, and everything will be at peace again. 
and everyone will stop following this Jesus. But of course, the double meaning is one person will in fact die for the nation. Jesus will die on the cross, and those who trust and believe in him will actually be saved. So it's actually this powerful double meaning. He doesn't realize he's saying it, but that's what's going on. Verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves, right? So this is one of the three annual pilgrimage festivals. It's when they remember when uh, God rescued the Hebrews out of slavery from Egypt. Verse 56, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will uh, not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. I started off this by saying, what is it to be like Jesus? Uh, Loving, yes. Humble, yes. Sacrificial, yes. What about crying like Jesus? What about crying like Jesus? Let me suggest just three things. And as I was preparing for this sermon and and praying and doing my research, I just felt that there's some people who need to hear this. So I'm just going to share them with you. Here's number one. Uh, First, crying is not a sign of weakness. Okay, can we just, can we just, can we just get that into our heads? Uh, crying is not a sign of weakness. For some reason here in highly individualistic North America, we, we've come up with this ideal person. You're strong and you're independent and you're self-sufficient. You don't need anyone. Uh, strong self-sufficiency is a myth. I once heard someone say that they were a self-made man. No such thing. Uh, we're also uh, in these interconnected relationships. Uh, for every self-made man, there's a mother who has sacrificed half her life to make him successful, you know. But for some reason, we, we have this sense that <laughs> it's true, it's true. But for some reason, wh- wh- where, where have we come to this place where, where it's like emotionless individualism is the ideal? Uh, is Jesus weak? No. <laughs> did Jesus cry? Yes, he did. Crying is not a sign of weakness, okay? Just get rid of that. Two. Crying can be a sign of Christ-likeness. We want to be like Jesus. Now, I'm not saying all tears and not all crying is a sign of Christ-likeness, okay? So, uh, for example, like if you're down at No Frills and they're out of your favorite ruffles and you just start weeping, that doesn't count. I'm not talking about that. Maybe you're a big fan of soap operas and uh, they write out or kill off your favorite character and you're just terrified, you know. uh, ah, No, I'm not talking about that. As nice as your soap opera is, whatever. Uh, No offense. Um... But why is Jesus crying? His friend has died, yes, but death and Satan still swing their battle axes, and the kingdom of God still has ground to take. And so in this sense, Jesus is weeping because he's acknowledging that things in the world are not as they should be. And he's mourning over that. That's why he's deeply moved. That's why he's indignant, because things are not as they should be. Our tears can be like Jesus' tears when we acknowledge things are not like they should be. When someone dies before we think they should. When someone lets us down. When we see an innocent person suffer. When we're so worried about someone we love. 
deeply moved, indignant. Third, tears are a reminder that the best is yet to come. Jesus wept, but that's not all he did. He turns around, he raises Lazarus from the dead, for goodness sakes. Now, what he's doing here, this is like a movie trailer. So you watch a movie trailer on TV and some 30-second blip from Warner Brothers comes up or something. It's supposed to give you a teaser about what the whole movie is going to be like. But that's what Jesus did. The raising of Lazarus is like a little movie trailer teaser to what will happen to all people who are in Christ at the end of time. These are allusions to Revelation 21. What will happen? There will be no mourning or crying or death or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The old order of things is where things are not as they should be. So Jesus sees all that and he performs this incredible act that people might believe and have hope yet again. And so it's a reminder that the best is yet to come and the things that are in the world that are broken, that are evidence of the reign of ongoing reign of death and Satan, things aren't always going to be that way. So someone we love passes away and we may shed tears, but those are a reminder that the best is actually yet to come. We have some worry, some grayness, some anxious despair comes over our life and nothing anyone says can help us with it. We know that things aren't supposed to be that way, but the tears we shed are a reminder that the best is actually yet to come. Maybe we see something else in life. Overwhelmed, there's a sickness of someone we care about. And we shed tears, and those tears are a reminder, in fact, that the best is yet to come. And the ultimate source of hope, Jesus will return one day. He will return. It's one of the great promises of Scripture. Nail marks in his hands, tear marks on his cheeks, and he will make all things new. And our tears are a reminder of that day. So, uh, this has not really been your typical sermon on being like Jesus. Um, My hope is that we've kind of looked at the text um, fairly thoroughly and thought about, okay, what are some of the blind spots that we've made be experienced? Uh, There are times when you can't keep it all together, when, when you recognize that things in this messed up world are not as they should be. And so we can think about being like Christ in a way maybe that we haven't before. Final thought, when Vernon Davis was just starting in a new congregation, uh, he, he wanted to find out about the congregation. And so he went and he met with like the patriarch. And she was in her 90s, lovely woman, coffee, snacks, the whole thing. You know what happens. And I uh, went over and she was telling stories about this. And she was a charter member. So she remembers when it had started and all the kind of the ups and downs that churches go through through the years. And uh, he really learned a lot, and he really had a good time. And then when he was leaving, he recorded this for the rest of us to remember it. She said this to him. She said, Reverend Davis, when you come to church on Sunday morning, we'll all be wearing nice clothes, and we'll all smile at you. And when you ask us how we're doing, we'll all say, we're doing fine. But don't let that fool you. Just remember that under every heart is a little pail of tears. Under every heart is a little pail of tears. Crying is not a sign of weakness. Crying can be a sign of Christ-likeness. Three tears are a reminder that the best is yet to come. Jesus wept, and yet there is hope. Amen.